uh, physiologically, and I'd even go so far as to say spiritually. It really is. You see some of the best in people, but you really see the worst. Okay, and and I can tell you. So I worked. I was primary on five homicides in the two years that I was in homicide, but our unit worked over a hundred. So I was indirectly involved in over a hundred homicides from the time I worked patrol, you know, responding to the scenes to my investigative time where, you know, uh, I'm helping people work their murder investigations. They're the primary and I'm, you know, secondary or whatever, just a, a guy at the scene. But having seen enough of them to feel that I'm qualified to say so, it, it really, the skill set that you have to have, not only as a professional law enforcement officer, but as a human being to be able to do that job, is it's nothing short of miraculous. This is the Silver Linings Handbook Podcast. I'm Jason Blair. That's Kevin Joseph Grogan, a former Savannah Chatham Metropolitan Police Department homicide detective who has a reputation as a straight shooter who cares passionately about public safety and the people in the mostly poor, minority, and dangerous neighborhoods that for 12 years he was sworn to protect. Kevin has traded his badge and gun in for a pin and now is the author of two books, the 2018 book Black Sheep, White Cop, and the 2022 book Ruffian. At a time when concerns about violent crime continue and the nation grips with the challenges in the wake of the death of black men like George Floyd, so much of the commentary and controversy is driven by politicians, activists, and others far from places like Brownsville, New York, the row houses of West Baltimore, or the streets of Savannah. That debate swings between law enforcement not doing enough about violent crime to campaigns to defund the police. Not enough of the conversation, however, is coming from or between law enforcement and the people they serve most. The challenges of policing, being protected and being policed, rarely go into the details of how officers are trained, how politicians talk out of one side of their mouths about reducing police violence, but then institute programs to reduce crime that are likely to do the opposite. Little of that talk about reducing crime often touches on the fact that officers often don't receive the tools or the training they need to be successful. In many ways, Kevin sees the challenges related to crime and law enforcement today as a failure of leadership. Kevin spent more than 12 years as a detective and an officer in Savannah, and before that, he served as a sergeant in the United States Army, where he was in Iraq and Kosovo. He's a graduate of Westfield State University in Westfield, Massachusetts, where he earned a bachelor's degree in criminal justice. Today, we're going to discuss the type of people who go into law enforcement, the price they pay, not just physically, but mentally and emotionally, the stigma that prevents so many officers from getting the treatment they need, and the anxiety and its impact on their performance in the field. We're also going to talk about what we can learn from the past few years to help us find a better way to police and be policed, 
And at a time when so much attention is focused on the criminal justice system, how we might be missing the mark, particularly when it comes to the trauma on both sides of the equation, that have left the police and the communities they're supposed to serve unmoored and untethered from their collective sense of meaning. This is the first of two episodes with Kevin. Hey, Kevin, I just wanted to thank you uh, for coming on the podcast. I really appreciate it. You know, as somebody who uh, used to be a reporter, used to cover the police, I know that the job of police officers are very different from the way that they're depicted. And then, you know, we recently had an episode on the Baton Rouge Police Department where we sort of explored some of the problems in their internal affairs department's But one of the striking things for me in doing that episode and talking to the folks who had written about what was happening in Baton Rouge was, you know, your average good cop who isn't the bad cop, isn't getting the training, is getting blamed for the worst part and isn't because of politics or other things like that, isn't getting the opportunity to really... um, you know, police the way that communities need to be policed. So I was thrilled to hear about you. I was thrilled to uh, read your book, Black Sheep, uh, White Cop. I really found it super interesting because I'm a fan of Savannah, Georgia. But also, I thought it was really awesome how you captured those difficulties for police officers and communities. I really think probably the most powerful thing. I know a lot of people may read it for all the salacious details about Savannah and law enforcement, but I think one of the most powerful things is that some of those challenges you talk about, that big picture stuff, is really emblematic of some of the complexities of policing in America. And I know you also have your second book, Ruffian, so I'm looking forward to reading that as well. But I'm just excited to have you on. Well, I appreciate you having me. You know, any, any chance I get to discuss any of these topics because they are really, I, I think in the country today, probably our, our biggest concern, you know, is the erosion of trust between the community and the police officers that serve. You know, and you said a whole bunch of things there. Uh, you know, Baton Rouge is a really interesting place that I don't know, you know, so, so much about, but it always takes me back when Alton Sterling is one of the uh, cases that I, highlight in a lot of the people that I talk to uh, as far as misconception of what happens with police, you know, in the sensationalism of uh, events concerning police. You know, people don't really worry about the facts. What they do is they take the headline uh, on social media or uh, any of the major news stations uh, and those headlines come out and people just run with that. They don't really spend the time to think um, about what's being said or find out the details to see what is what, you know, if it's tilted in the, it's not justified category, then that ball rolls and it's, it's very, very difficult to get back. I mean, things like hands up, don't shoot in Ferguson, Missouri and, and on and on. I can't breathe in uh, New York city with Eric Garner and all of those cases. But you know what? I think we as a society really, really need to slow down, stop and start uh, before we argue and tearing things up in the in our own communities 
really figure out what's going on. Stop acting so emotionally and let's throw some intellect into some of it. Well, and I think it's also a matter of perspective. Like, um, you know, in, in journalism, one of the sayings is that, you know, dog bites man is not a new story. Man bites dog is. And I think and a CIA officer that I'm friends with crystallized it for me. He said, you know, you're going to hear in the newspapers our mistakes and the worst things that we do, but you're not going to hear about all the good things. Just to give you an example, like of a story that'll never, uh, never, never end up in the newspaper, but I, I work in mental health. And one day we had a patient in the office who was psychotic and he needed to go to the hospital, right? So, you know, we tried everything we can. Finally, we called the police to do a temporary detention order, which is like a hold to take them to the hospital. The cops could have come in, asked her to leave, uh, done the TDO immediately. But instead, they spent seven hours, seven hours in the room with her, with me going in, them rotating in, and finally convincing her to go. That's like, that situation could have gone so wrong right? On so many levels, but you're never going to hear the stories of law enforcement officers doing that every day. And so I think we tend to look at, you know, in a very reactionary way with a very small slice of the most salacious things. And we say, we're somehow going to solve that problem, but we don't necessarily look at the big picture. Is, is that fair? I love that example. Cause I can tell you it, and obviously I'm not going off of any real statistic here, but just based on general experience with situations like that, being called to a mental health crisis or or whatever, 99 out of 100 times, that situation uh, will be handled the way you're describing. And But the one time that it goes wrong where there's a use of force, that's the one that's going to hit the news. But, you know, it, to me, your story is not surprising at all. I think to the general public, after being bombarded with, again, sensational stories in mass media, they would find that hard to believe. Yeah. Ooh, well, oh. They didn't take the time to sit down and talk. Not true. Yeah. When I tell people that story, they are, uh, they are infinitely um, surprised. And one of the things, you know, in you know, uh, New York, you have access to police scanners and other stuff like that. And they, I told one friend recently, listen to the police scanner. Listen to the word EDP, because in New York Police Department parlance, that's emotionally disturbed person. And listen to how many calls they go through and how many times you don't hear about something going wrong. But I do agree that it is like, you know, it, it, it's one of those things that doesn't get factored into the entire equation. And, and part of the reason, part of what I was interested in, in a day and age, right, because it's been a while, like you go back to Abner Lima in New York, who was uh, attacked by Justin Volpe, a police officer there. You go back even before that, you know, being a police officer is not an easy job and they've very much been maligned. So I was curious, what what is it that inspired you to become a police officer? What led you to Savannah? I know you also worked in the military police and the army, but how did you, how did, how did you decide to do that? Well, let me tell you, you put some age on me uh, with the <laughs> examples you use there. And I, cause I'm way before even those, but you know, I, 
grew up in a suburb of Hartford, Connecticut. It's actually the first town established in Connecticut. It was Windsor, Connecticut. And my uncle, so my mother's sister's husband, was a superstar detective in Springfield, Massachusetts, which was 20 minutes up the road from us. And I remember as a very young kid, I mean very young, going to my grandmother's apartment, and she would keep a scrapbook of all the newspaper clippings from my Uncle Mac uh, and his exploits as a narcotics and then later a homicide investigator. And I thought, man, that is the coolest thing ever. So probably from first or second grade, I knew I was going to be a police officer. Um, That's what got me into it. And then, you know, I went to college, Westfield State College in Westfield, Massachusetts, home of the Mighty Fighting Owls. Uh, and I majored in criminal justice. I'm partial to owls. I love owls. They're so wise. And also, I I really believe, I don't know if you know the Michael Peterson case. I think the owl. Oh, yeah. (laughs) Let let me tell you. So owls are birds of prey. And, uh, you know, I I played two years of football there, and the toughest thing you could make out of an owl was there was an article in the local paper about how the owls were sweeping in and taking – small dogs off the end of leashes. So it made us feel super tough because, you know, owls in their talents is about as tough as you can make an owl. <laughs> they, they are tough. I, in my neighborhood, there's some farms to the west of me and this dog survived. So no dogs were harmed in this story, but, um, and a snowy owl came down. One of them from Canada migrated, picked up the dog, literally dropped it from above the trees. The dog, Luckily survived, had an injured leg and got better. But uh, that that taught me an important lesson about owls. I began to see them more like eagles at that point. Yeah. Oh, no. They are tough, tough birds. But I digress. So I started my law enforcement career in my hometown of Windsor, uh, Connecticut. And after a very short stint there, I went and joined the U.S. Army because my world was very, very small. I was not worldly. My whole world was probably about a 20-mile radius. Uh, So I joined the Army, went off to Germany. What what inspired you to make the jump to the Army? Were you looking to experience more of the world? I I wanted to get more training, more experience, and I wanted to see uh, more of the world, which was really cool because I was actually a political science minor in college in in the mid-'90s the big topic in the whole political world was the breakup of Yugoslavia. Right. So uh, I hit Germany and six months later I was in Kosovo, which is the southernmost province in uh, Serbia in the former Yugoslavia. So all the things that I studied in college, I was there uh, seeing it on the ground. So it was Was really, was that at the point where we had begun our, the air force had begun its intervention or, it was afterwards. It was afterwards. Okay. Mine, mine was a very, very peacekeeping role. Uh, no combat at all. It, all that, all the aggression had stopped uh, at that point. But you know, I mean, the worst thing I did in Kosovo was we sat and garbed one of the uh, the mass graves that was unearthed. Mm. But again, it, no combat, anything like that. But intellectually, it was fascinating to me. In uh, the connections I made with a lot of people there, it was really cool to be able to talk to them of what that whole situation was like, but you know, like I said, mission accomplished. If you want to get outside of, uh, you know, your 20 mile radius and you want to see the world, 
going to see a place like the former Yugoslavia was a, a great place to go. Yeah. I had to struggle. You know, I, I struggled because my home base was Heidelberg, Germany, which mm-hmm. is top five prettiest cities in the world. So it was difficult, but I got through it. <laughs> well, one of the things that uh, that kind of, sh- or one of the things that kind of strikes me as you're talking about Kosovo and I'm thinking about that and also thinking about like policing and, and your experience in going to Iraq, in the former Yugoslavia, it all comes together, right? The ethnic concerns, the legal concerns, the political concerns, like it's almost as if if you can survive in the former Yugoslavia's uh, cauldron, you can pr- you probably learn a lot of good lessons for dealing with any kind of political situation in the world. Oh, and it, it taught me that all of this, military and especially law enforcement, is all about communication and being able to relate to people. Even if you don't exactly understand what's going on in the moment, if you have the ability to sit back and kind of assess what's going on, even without all the details, you can still deal with it just by being a decent human and being a good communicator. Right. And, and I think 99.9% of that is what I consider to be being an effective police officer. Yeah. And so from there, from Kosovo, where, where'd you go there? Came to, uh, well, I went back to Germany, had a, <laughs> had a great detail. I was a protective service agent for the commanding general of the United States Army Europe. Uh, General Montgomery Miggs, who is now deceased, but probably one of, if not the biggest hero in my life. He was the epitome of what a soldier is and should be. I worked for him, learned a great deal, but that was right around the time. So I joined the Army in peacetime. September 11th happened about two years in. Uh, and, you know, we knew we were gearing up. When you're, when you're working around generals, you know what's coming. Kind of, you see the forecast and you see where it's going. I was a newly promoted sergeant and I got orders to Fort Stewart, Georgia, which is here uh, in Hinesville in Liberty County. And, you know, I had a conversation with the chief of staff and he said, you know, we, we want, you know, we really like you here. Uh, we'd like you to stay working for the general. I said, sir, he said nothing I would love more. However, all right, you know, the country's going to war. I'm a newly promoted sergeant and where I should be is with the troops. And no officer or any leader in the army is going to stop you from doing that. It was the dumbest thing I ever said in my life. But <laughs> uh-uh. oh, the number of times I say I have a really good idea, I'm going to regret saying this. But <laughs> I, I tell you, I've had some doozies, and they've all come back and bit me. So uh, anyway, that, came to story. That name you mentioned, Montgomery Mitt. Montgomery Cunningham Miggs, his great great uncle, was the first quartermaster general of the Union Army. Yep, and second, second to Arlington Cemetery, and yeah, yes, and and he engineered the dome for the Capitol building. Oh wow, I didn't know that. uh, Yeah, no, Miggs Avenue cuts Arlington uh, Cemetery in half, and now Montgomery Cunningham Miggs, uh, my boss. Uh, he's buried there not far from his great, great uncle. And, and, you know, that's such a fascinating story, both West Point graduates, but General Miggs, like I said, he was the absolute epitome of what a leader and soldier is. And in my mind, that's what, uh, anytime somebody says the word soldier, I point that out. And my son, who is a United States army ranger, his middle name is Montgomery because he was 
born at the time that I was working for the general. So oh, wow. that's where that comes from. What was it that you admired about him? Oh, he was just, he was this man. So he was a tanker by uh, trade. So as a young lieutenant, uh, he was a tanker, served in Vietnam, uh, got a Purple Heart. He was with the 9th Infantry. Uh, he actually served with General Eric Shinseki, who later went on to become not only the chief of staff of the Army, but the Secretary of Veterans Affairs. Yeah. And, uh, you know, another great soldier. But General Miggs was, you know, he didn't curse. Uh, he talked to every soldier as whether they were an E1 private or, you know, an O3, whatever their rank was. Uh, he spoke to us all so respectfully, and he was always trying to do what was right, not just for the individuals, not just for the soldiers, but what was good for the Army. You know, if he could save a dime on a trip and keep the Army from having to spend it, he did. And, and you know, he held us to a very high standard. And it just when you think of the word leader, that's when I think of that General Miggs pops up uh, in my head. I'm actually sitting in my living room right now, and I have a autographed picture that he gave me when I left Germany. Oh, and, you know, it, like I said, just absolute leader. But so as a first general, yeah. oh, yeah. No, and, yeah, and he was he was a guy that, as a four-star general, knew uh, E-1's private job on uh, on a tank. Like he could tell you uh, the right bolt you had to use to close the door all the way up to commanding uh, a major theater of combat. He could do from the top to the bottom without even batting an eye. One of the most intelligent and most honorable men I've ever met. Yeah. It sounds like a, a great, great sort of role model to have at the, such an early point in, in your career. Oh yeah. It, it kind of, you know, he set the tone for any leader that I had thereafter. Uh, but when I left Germany, I, I came to Fort Stewart. Uh, my son was born, and he was born February 8th of 2003. And the ground war kicked off, I believe it was March 24th of 2003 in Iraq. And then I was on the first thing smoking. I got to stay home for his birth. But then, you know, I was on the first thing smoking to Iraq, and I got there in June. Mm. June of 2003. Okay. Tell me a little bit about what Iraq uh, was like. I know there's that great story I read in your um, book uh, in Black Sheep, White Cop, where you where you talked about this police operation, uh, Sadr City. And one of the striking things, you dramatically tell the story, and, uh, and I'll let you explain it because you'll explain it better than me, but... But it ended up being this dramatic situation and not a shot fired. And you, you learned an important lesson from that. But tell me about what it was like in Iraq and what that, that story. You know, Iraq and specifically Sadr City in 2003 was uh, like nothing else I'd ever seen in my life. And truthfully, never want to see again. Um, you know, the hot spots were there were spots in Baghdad that, that were super tough. Baghdad, right? The Sadr City. Sadr City is a is a neighborhood, basically, in the city of Baghdad. Okay. Uh, and you know, you hear about Fallujah, you hear about Sadr City. There's all kinds of documentaries and movies that are made about those places. But we, you know, I, I had been on a peacekeeping mission, but I had never been in combat. 
uh, I was in country for four days and they started, you know, I went there thinking, oh, yeah, I'm going to be a war hero because I'm a super tough guy. And then they shot at us and tried to blow us up. And I was like, you know what? I think I want to go home. I don't like this place. Um, it was a, it was a really, it was not at all like the movies. It wasn't at all what I thought it was going to be. I don't regret a second that I spent there next to, you know, my brothers and sisters in the 549th MP company. We were attached to the second armored cavalry regiment. And, you know, like I said, I don't regret a second that I spent there, but if given a choice to say, we're all going to go or none of us are going to go. I'd say none of us are going to go. But, you know, I didn't care about politics at the time then. It, ours was simply to, you know, you had orders, you followed the orders, and you and you trust in the Army. And, you know, we had great leaders then too. You know, I think General Ricardo Sanchez, who was over the operation at the time, who I had known from Germany, you know, he, he got a bad rap after the whole, um, what was it, Abu Ghraib? Yes. The prison scandal. Yep, 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 yep. Yeah. So he was the commanding general over the whole operation and that occurred. So, you know, he uh he took a lot of heat from that. Like the true leader he was, you know, he accepted the the burden of what happened there, even though he was not directly Was that that was the scandal where the military police officers from were they from Cumberland, Maryland or somewhere like that? Ended it, was up- an, it was a National Guard company, I think, that was running the the uh, detention facility and they, you know, I mean, that was ungodly, um, inhumane. It, it was a terrible way to treat any human. Right. Uh, you know, no excuse for that. Yeah. And they photographed themselves doing it, which is, yeah, I mean, uh, absolutely deplorable behavior and, and disgusting, not, not representative of the, of the army that I know, uh, or feel that I served in, uh, you know, a. a it was a bunch of bad apples spoiling a much larger bunch. Mm-hmm. But uh, General Sanchez, like I said, great leader, uh, great human, great individual. He was over all that stuff. But, I, you know, I, I had the pleasure of serving. And I didn't ask questions because I trusted people like General Sanchez and Colonel Bradley May, who was the regimental commander of the 2nd Armored Cavalry Regiment at the time. You know, those guys told us what to do, and we went and we did it. And uh that included patrols in Sodder City and training police officers in Sodder City. And that, you know, the incident you're talking about, I, I think you're talking about the one where we actually did, there were a lot of shots fired, but there was one way and nobody got hit. Right. That's what uh, it was. Yep. You got it. You got it. And I right. used, I used that as an example of, you know, like I said, sir, you know, I, I have always fancied myself a tough guy. You know, I, I played contact sports as a kid. All the way up through college, uh, I fancied myself as uh, a martial artist and a fighter for a long time. But combat's an entirely different thing. And when I hear people say, oh, I know how I'm going to react in combat. If you've never been there, no, you don't, because it's different every time. It's not something that, you know, like I said, in Hollywood, it's so glamorized. But if you've ever been there, it's, it's, there's nothing glamorous about it. And there is nothing easy. And I think the point I was trying to make in Black Sheep was, you know, it's it's not human nature. It's really not in a person, especially now after we've evolved so much and become civilized. Killing is not a it's not a natural thing uh, for people there. There are extremely adverse reactions you have physiologic physiologically from uh, going through that. And those guys, like I said, trained soldiers 
who were the whole story is the long and short of it is is we were on a raid with the Iraqi police. Um, I believe it was a carjacking, or he had just shot a Iraqi police officer. And we chased him into the house and we go and we secure the perimeter, which you know is standard operating procedure. I was on the entry team and we go through and we swept the house and we didn't find anybody. So he must, you know, it's not uncommon for before you get the perimeter all the way around for them to get out the side that you're not, don't have secured. But we got it secured. We go through the house and again, nobody's there. And as we're walking out, one of the last guys looks and saw something move and it turned out to be this guy. So we go, we chase him up. He's up against the wall. And these are four very well-trained, very heavily armed uh, soldiers, basically a firing line. And it's from, you know, it was, had to be four to seven yards away, not very far. And we're not talking pistols. We have M4 rifles that are, you know, the maximum effective range is 150 meters. And we're at four or seven meters. We're right in the same room. Uh, And the only thing between us and him was a table with a sewing machine. You know, I remember that clearly. A lot of defense. Yeah. No. And as as I'm standing there, uh, the Iraqi police who had left were coming back and kind of charging up into the room. Well, they all had rifles, and my guys are standing online. You know, we're ordering, we're yelling commands at this guy, and of course, there's a language barrier. But then the Iraqi police file into this very small room, and they're pointing rifles, trying to point at the bad guy, but they're pointing rifles into the back of our soldiers. Mm. So I go to direct their weapons away from our soldiers. And as I turn to do that, all hell broke loose, bunch Mm. of shooting. So I turn around and I'm, you know, obviously the adrenaline's going, my heart's beating and all that stuff. And I jump over the table that has the sewing machine on it, fully expecting to see this guy obliterated. And he's just laying there on the ground in the fetal position, not a scratch on him. Not one scratch on them. And and all that tells me, and this is not at all, and in no way, a condemnation or criticism of the soldiers that fired shots. It just tells you, you're right there and go, and they had a difficult time doing it. And it's another, it's another interesting thing about that story. And tell me if I'm wrong on this. You know, when you think of, shootings in general, you know, lawfully law abiding people who shoot other people. You know, I think a lot of times why people pull the trigger and we don't think about this, and I think it probably applies to cops too, is fear, anxiety often is the reason or confusion is often the reason why why the first shot flies. Well you when you're in such a when you're in such an intense situation, you know Anything can set it off. And, you know, there's different levels of fear. I, I'd say there are different levels of terror at that point. When you're when you're in a life and death situation and, and there you have armed participants, you know, somebody on one side of that is is absolutely in terror. And mm-hmm. if somebody makes a f- what in the, you know, the legal jargon, the police jargon is somebody makes a furtive movement, you know, in a non-tense situation, you go ahead, you scratch your nose, no big deal. But when guns are pointing at each other and you make a movement to scratch your nose, it changes the whole equation because you don't know what they're going to do and you react to that. So the fear, 
the anxiety, the adrenaline. There's so many factors that go into it that, again, you see it in movies, but it's nothing of what it's like in real life. It's, you know, the scariest situations I've ever been in have have been right there. And it's not 150 meters away. It's always two, three feet, you know, standing at a car door for police officers and or standing in a cramped apartment or, or a cramped room like I just described. It's just, it's not a natural thing. You know, when, when you go and you do it, uh, when people kill, they feel bad. Most, most people feel bad. And, and there's, uh, you know, a lot of repercussions for it. It's why you see all the treatment and therapies for post-traumatic stress nowadays. Right. Because, right. We're, you know, because now we're aware of it. But the guys from Vietnam and the guys from World War II, they didn't get treated for that. Right. Yeah, and a lot they of them had to deal with it. Rooms. Yeah. No, and, and their you know the level of combat that those guys saw when when we talk about World War II veterans, Korean veterans, Vietnam veterans, you know it, it was uh, largely ignored. And the level of combat that those guys saw compared to the level of uh, combat that forces see today, with very few exceptions, you know, guys who fought uh, in the first rush of Baghdad uh, and. A lot of the time that was spent in Fallujah and some other small pockets in Iraq and Afghanistan. You know, they're they're well documented cases of fierce, fierce combat. But that was not uh, wasn't a common occurrence in twenty years. I I think we lost uh, in twenty years maybe what they lost in a month in Vietnam. Right. So uh, yeah. you know, it, it's different levels, and I have respect for my generation of uh, soldiers, Marines, airmen, uh, sailors, and but I have immense respect for the guys that, you know, the guys in Vietnam that I feel uh, were forgotten and not taken care of. The guys from the Korean War that fought, uh, went through all that, and they, they weren't treated all that well. World War II, you know, those guys were treated well, but they didn't know what they were dealing with at then. Right, we, right. we benefit so much from what they did, not only as a country, but as a military, what, the way we're treated now compared yeah, to the way that those learned. guys... Yeah, we yeah. learned a lot from this. You know, another thing about that story, it reminds me, I remember, so I, I was in New York as a reporter in 1999 when Amadou um, Diallo was shot. And that's the that's the story where officers from the New York uh, Police Department Street Crime Unit, I think it was, uh, I think it was like, four or five of them. It may have been, it may have been four or five, right, four, but they, you know, were on a patrol at night. Diallo was going into his house in the Bronx. He turned around, you know, the reporting at the time in the beginning was they thought he had a gun. It was really a cell phone. And I was in my head on the bandwagon of like, these cops completely screwed it up, blah, 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 blah. Anyway, I started covering the story. And as I was covering the story, I, you know, the more reporting I did, the more I found out, because I was covering the department itself, the more I found out, the more I realized that entire shooting didn't really happen because of a cell phone. It happened because of a trip. One of the cops tripped and it created this cascading chaos, almost like the chaos you're talking about in Iraq, where they thought they were being fired on and then... You know, they fired in kind. And I think so many of these tragedies that get politica- politicized and, you know, uh, 
the political activists get on their, you know, go to city hall or get on national television to rail about whatever the issue is, you know, are so unlike the reality. And if we had paid attention to the reality there, maybe not something like the racism or the callousness of the cops, but maybe something like training would have become our focus or different procedures may have been our focus. But I feel like so many times the public dialogue misses the real issues around those things. Wouldn't agree with you more. And, and the thing that I'll add to that is so, you know, when I talk about when I'm asked about uh, specific incidences, especially to do with law enforcement and use of forces and all of those types of things. Now, I'm never infallible and I never stick to this perfectly because, again, I'm human. And that's a very important theme. We got to remember we're talking about human beings in all of these situations. All of us are flawed in some way. And, you know, sometimes you make huge mistakes at, at very key times. However, I always try to remind myself in my ego that as much as I think I know, I was not there. Right. Uh, I didn't smell what was going on. I didn't hear what was going on. I didn't see what was going on from all angles. I wasn't, I didn't know what was leading up to all these incidents. So when we get videos that are segmented and you're only getting part of the story and you're only getting it from one point of view, uh, the audio might be limited. All of these things, you're missing so much of what is happening in all of those situations. So for any of us who were not there uh, without going through with a fine tooth comb, which takes an exceedingly long amount of time to look into uh, and investigate and get as much of that information as you possibly can after fact, you have to you know, just say, I wasn't there. There's no way you can know. You can't gather all those facts quickly. And it was like, oh, we need tra transparency became the biggest word. We want to know right now. We want to right now. There's a huge uh, gap there of what the public is entitled to know and what they need to know or what they just want to know. Or what I agree. can be known because you get this as a detective that, you know, you can go to the scene of a anything, a crime, a concert, I don't know, a conversation. And if you ask five people what happened, there are five different stories and there's lots of being unsure. You know, it's easy to think that, you know, maybe only the people on the scene know, but in reality, when you're in a intense situation or even just one you're not paying too much attention to, it's hard for anyone to know what really happened, if that makes sense. Yeah, you, you get two sides of a story. There are probably 17 sides to that same story. You collect as much of it. And the truth is somewhere in the middle of all those stories. You know, you, you never, I, I can't think of one case, even the ones that I solved down to, uh, you know, absolute certainty for court. I still don't know 100% of what happened because, again, I wasn't there. Right. You know, and I try to remind myself of that often. But the scrutiny that uh, police officers face on a daily basis and especially in a highly charged uh situation where you're talking about a loss of life or use of force or anything like that the american citizenry and i'm not trying to be harsh to anybody because i do it myself but they pass judgment so quick and oh man i watched nypd blue so i know i've seen the wire so i know how these investigations go or, or whatever 
TV show or movie they've seen, it, they think that somehow qualifies them to be a law enforcement professional. Uh, there's a lot of training that goes into it. There's a lot of experience that goes past your training that leads you to make decisions in situations uh, in the situations that you're involved in, the decisions you make, you know, that's based on a whole bunch of training, based on a whole bunch of experience that you have, hopefully uh, something that's prepared you for the situation. But, you know, I don't watch medical TV shows and, <laughs> and try to perform tell surgery. what to do. We'll yeah, I, I don't think so. I, I watch the Food Network and stuff like that. But trust me, you don't want me making your dinner. <laughs> and, you know, it's it's funny you mentioned the TV shows. And I think a lot of people do, you know, and you see the same thing with like attorneys in the courtroom. They'll watch things and think they know enough or enough to just be dangerous. I had a police detective once tell me, like, there's only one TV show in his entire life that captured uh uh, what being a police officer is, or what a detective was like. And I was like, which one is this one? And they said, oh, it was this one in the 90s called Homicide Life on the Street. And I was like, what? what is it about that that captured it? It's like, we spend so much time bored doing paperwork, never really figuring out what happened. <laughs> yeah, that's, not, that's not the stuff you sign up for. It's a little more glamorous in your head, you know, but the reality of it is, is, you know, there is a lot of writing and, uh, sitting around waiting for something to happen. Right. So tell me a little bit about Savannah. Uh, I, I'm i going to use my tagline. It, this is what I always say. I was in Savannah, Georgia for about three hours, and I knew I was never going to leave. Oh. Uh, there's a tempo down here. It, first of all, it's arguably the prettiest city in America, uh, but the tempo here is it's fantastic. You know, I remember I was in a bank. I had just got here, and I was waiting to – I had to take some money out of the bank to get my rent settled so I could get my wife at the time and newly born son a place to live before I got on a plane and took off to Iraq. And I just remember standing in that line and there was a older lady and I say older, she's probably as old as I am now, but she talked to me like I'd known her forever. And then there was, when she got up to the counter to do her transaction, there was a guy behind me and we started talking. I had the same, a uh, very similar conversation. I had never met these people. And yet it, it kind of felt like this is where I belonged. There's just something really, really special about Savannah. It's, I call it the Boston of the South, you know, well, it's, it's very traditional. I call it the New Orleans of Georgia. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, it's, it's Savannah is a great city. Like too, I said, maybe, maybe too I'm, much reading Midnight of the Garden of Evil for me. <laughs> uh, they, uh, there's a sore subject. That's the I refer to that as the other Savannah book. Right, right, right. I um. So when you tell me, so you got to Savannah, you realized even before you before you moved there, when, you know, when you were still in the army, that that would be the the place for you? Did you know you were going to go into law enforcement at that point, go back into civilian law enforcement? Yeah, hundred percent. Absolutely. That was, that was the goal. I went to go. My time in Baghdad taught me a lot. Um, taught me, I was, you know, I can't say that I wouldn't have gone back, uh, had I been ordered or, you know, I'd have done what I was told, but I definitely didn't want to go back. But as much as I love the army, you know, I, I saw a few, flaws and cracks in it. And my goal, I had a degree, 
at that point. My goal was to come back to civilian law enforcement a little more worldly, a little more wise. Uh, so I got out my ex-wife's mother uh, and her stepfather were both, they had both been police officers in Savannah. And as soon as I got out of the army, it was, I think I got out in July and I got hired in December of 2004 uh, and started working for the Savannah Chatham Metropolitan Police Department. And that was the combined Savannah and Chatham County Police Department. What was policing like? I never remember. When I got here, okay, I was the first class of the joined merged police department. Then, you know, I got got a little drunk, got arrested, got fired and all that stuff. And then they demerged. I'm not saying they did it because of me, but <laughs> they, uh, separated back to the city and county, county. shortly thereafter. Uh, and they, they are currently... There's the city of Savannah Police Department and there's the Chatham County Police Department. So the Savannah Chatham Metropolitan Police Department is no more. What was uh, being a patrol officer in 2004 like down there? One of the coolest things I've ever done in my life. Working patrol in Savannah was really, really cool. You know, I'm, I'm a, I guess you could probably classify me as a mildly liberal Yankee, uh, <laughs> but a white guy from the Northeast dropped down in downtown Savannah and my first patrol, my first beat was a, a housing project. One of the most. Could they understand anything you were saying? <laughs> oh yeah. Oh no. Trust me. I, I spoke a little fast back then, but I got it. I caught it. I caught up with the lingo real quick, <laughs> but it was, it was a very exciting time. Like I said, Savannah, it, it is, it's the Boston and South. It's very alive, you know, and if you wanted to be a police officer, Back in those days, it was a great city, uh, especially our downtown and central precincts. There was a lot going on, a lot of drugs, a lot of gangs, a lot of guns, a lot of if you wanted to learn how to police, they, they were going to put you through it. And you would learn uh, you either learned real quick or you found a different job. What was the day to day of policing like? What's the job like? Shoot. I, I loved every second of it. You know, it's just you're going around uh, and you're talking to people. I've always respected people in the uh, corrections environment because, you know, they're locked in a box, you know, and they got to go every day into this box. And you're dealing with people who are incarcerated. So they're not in the best mood. Good people, bad people, who, whatever reason. They're you outnumbered there. 10 to 1. Oh, yeah. Not a not a fun situation. Me, every day, I get in a car. I drive through the prettiest city in the country and I get to talk to people. And, you know, I would say 80% of the time I'm either looking for something or all I'm doing is talking to people. That's it, you know, and then, you know, you mix in court and all the all the things. But the the more romantic and the realer, cooler side of it uh, was just the talking to the people. You know, I, I spent a lot of time on foot in the neighborhoods that I was working and I had a blast with that. And just a simple conversation or a simple walkthrough very often uh, turned into foot chases or arrests or whatever, just from, you know, digging. It was whatever my imagination could, where I could stick my nose and come up with, it would turn into something. And, you know, you went from there. So I learned a lot, uh, trial and error. And I, again, just like in the army, I was blessed to have fantastic uh, supervisors and leadership that not only knew what they were doing, but were excellent at showing me how to do things. And it all boiled down to 
you know, treat people with respect and uh, you'll learn a lot. And you know, not unlike what my parents taught me. So it, it did a lot for me. How was the relationship, um, you know, between the police department and the black community in, in Savannah? It really, it, you know, I suppose that it depends on who you ask. All right. Uh, but from my experience, you're talking about the deep South. All right. We're, we're in, you know, you're in Georgia. No, we're in South Georgia. All right. So you know, racism down here is, is very much alive. I, I think, you know, we live in a city that, and I'll rewind it to 2006. Uh, but in 2006, you know, our city government still operated like it was 1950. So, you know, you have some very old ideas and some very old practices and, you know, people don't forget, you know, they, they remember how things were uh, and you're in a uniform with a badge and a gun and you represent the old South just from walking in there. Right. But my experience was that was in this city, especially that was very, very easily overcome by just being a decent person, you know, just, just talking to people respectfully uh, and letting them know that you cared about the community. And as soon as you did that, you know, I, I didn't have any, uh, I didn't have any real pushback. Even the guys that I locked up at the end of it, when it's all said and done, I would take the time to explain to them why we went through what we went through and they would either agree or not agree. But, you know, to me, again, it's just a very, very important about how you treat people. Did you, you mentioned racism and I was wondering whether, did you, do you think that within the department or your, your experience, there was a problem with racism that was different than the broader racism that exists in society? No. And and I was speaking absolutely to the broader existence of it, Mm -hmm. uh, within the police department. No, you know, and, and another, I hate to. It reuse lines, but some of them just keep coming back to me, is I never worked with any police officer, black, white, male, female, wh- whatever your religion is. I never worked with a police officer that when a 911 call came in, none of them ever stopped and said, well, could you tell me the race of the uh, victim or the right. suspect and have them react any different? Mm-hmm. Cops go to go to help people. It doesn't matter what the thing, I'm not saying there aren't individuals who harbor racial whatever, That's in any job, anywhere, anything. But to classify police officers as an inherently racist or more racist than uh, the rest of society is completely inaccurate. Like I said, you know, most people get into law enforcement, regardless of what uh, the general public thinks. Most people get into law enforcement to genuinely help people. Dealing with some of these broader issues around policing has a lot more to deal with dealing with some of the broader issues, not just racism around society. Like you, you made the point that most people get into policing to help people, you know, maybe if, for example, you had more people in the broader society who are focused that way, you'd get better results. Oh my God. Yeah. I mean, if, if we just follow the golden rule, you know, our, our lives would be a lot better, but you know, things get tainted very easily, especially when you're talking about people. Because you go back to it, you know, I'm a generally good person, if you ask me. But guess what? Even I have off days. I do dumb right. stuff. I've done dumb things. I've made made errors and judgments. And some days I've woke up in a bad mood and I've just been a jerk. When I you don't know? do something, I'm having an off day. <laughs> yeah, but it just, it's, it's what happens. It, it, what, 
it's what happens and it it kind of is what makes the world uh the bad things that happen in the world is probably because of that but the great things that happen in the world is because of that too so true well because i think that there is something that's just what makes humanity sort of beautiful are our flaws right like our blemishes or our weaknesses i think about my life and without my flaws and my mistakes i wouldn't be probably the empathetic caring person that i am now right i wouldn't have been humbled i wouldn't have been you know so i yeah i think that there is something to be said for like what we can learn and how we can grow and how we can become better uh through those flaws or experiences did you did you know you wanted to be a detective? How did that happen? Oh God, yeah. No, I, from the second from the second I started working, uh, that I knew homicide. That was my goal, man. I I didn't want to do anything else. I wanted to solve murders. I don't think there's a greater responsibility or challenge in any job than solving a murder and bringing a killer to justice. Uh, I will tell you, avenging angels. Even though I got there. Uh, right. It was not at all what I thought it was. I was nowhere near as good as a homicide detective as I was a street uh, like gang and gun investigator. You know, my my talents laid in what I call the offensive realm. You know, what do you mean by that? Homicide is that well, proactive policing is you're going out and you're trying to prevent crime. Hey, you're going out, you're trying to get the guns before somebody gets shot and killed. I that was my expertise. That's that's where I excelled. Uh murder, somebody's dead by the time before you even start. So you're reacting to it. Uh if somebody's already dead, whether you solve it or not, you you're not changing the fact that that person's dead. Right. And like I said, I, I'm again being a huge fan of mine, I, I was a competent homicide detective, but it was not my forte. It was not it's not what I was best at. Uh, and homicide is is a place that's where you put your best people, no doubt. And I was a damn good police officer. I was a decent homicide detective. I, I worked if it weren't for the guys around me, uh, I probably wouldn't even have been that. But I again, uh, the pleasure and honor of working along people that will work for 72 hours straight for very little pay to catch the people that are out here harming society. I have nothing but respect and uh, my hat's off to the men and women who do it every day. What is the job of being a homicide detective like? You know, often when we see it, it's like the law and order version, right? You get a clue, you look at a scene, all of a sudden, you know, within 45 minutes, you've arrested the bad guy and his trial will be done in 10 minutes. What's it really like to be a a homicide detective? It's the most stressful. uh, It's more stressful than combat. Oh wow! It, it is really, it, it is the it's the ultimate wear and tear on a person emotionally, physically, uh, physiologically, and I'd even go so far as to say spiritually. It really is. You see some of the best in people, but you really see the worst. Okay, and and I can tell you. So I worked. I was primary on five homicides in the two years that I was in homicide, but uh, our unit worked over a hundred. So I was indirectly involved in over a hundred homicides from the time I worked patrol, you know, responding to the scenes to my investigative time where, you know, 
uh, I'm helping people work their murder investigations. They're the primary and I'm, you know, secondary or whatever, just a, a guy at the scene. But having seen enough of them to feel that I'm qualified to say so, it, it really, the skill set that you have to have, not only as a professional law enforcement officer, but as a human being to be able to do that job, is it's nothing short of miraculous. What does it do to you as just as a as a person just thinking about it as an outsider you know it's one thing to read about a murder in the newspaper it's another thing to talk to the victim's family to become immersed in the private parts of their lives that they probably never would want anyone flipping through even getting to know the suspects and their families i imagine takes its uh, emotional toll what does it do to you as a detective well obviously i can only speak to what it did to me uh and again so 2003 solder city i'm in baghdad and i saw a lot of killing all right so i was i'm not going to say and some people say you get used to it uh maybe i'm soft i never got used to it it was never something I was ever really comfortable with. Uh, you know, I saw some pretty horrific violence in a combat environment to include the uh, bombing of the United Nations in 2000, August 19th, 2003. You know, that was one of the most devastating things I've ever seen. So I, I say that to say, fast forward to 2013, 10 years later. I don't know if you know too much about PTSD or post-traumatic stress or anything like that, but they say, you're okay. You can get through a lot of that stuff, but there's about a 10-year window. And if you don't treat or at least acknowledge or in some way get some therapy for post-traumatic stress within 10 years, you're going to have some adverse reactions. Well, well I, I, am, into- I, am, I am one of those fools. I witnessed the 9-11 attacks in Manhattan and and you, you were good until about 2011, I bet. You know, it's it's funny you say that because uh, for years, my both my therapist and my father said, you know, I think there might you know, be something going on. You might have a little PTSD, and I was like, yeah, 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 yeah whatever. And then somewhere around it, I 2009, it. I read the 9/11 Commission report. Got to that first 102 minutes uh, between when the first tower was hit and when they collapsed and I broke out into a panic attack. I never had one in my life. I was sweating. The room was spinning. And I was like, guys, you might, (laughs) you might be onto something. But then the crazy thing is, you know, I think one of the things about PTSD is you build up all these walls and these defenses to protect yourself. And, you know, I, I don't think I've ever, said this beyond my close friends, but those walls I built up to sort of protect myself, to keep myself safe, probably just separated me and damaged my life in ways that it's hard to even imagine for years and years and years. So, But all I can say to you, brother, is amen. I understand exactly what you mean. So I, I bring all that up to say, so 2012, I went from 
uh, organized crime drug enforcement task force with the ATF into homicide. So that's nine years into my post combat days. And now I go into the thick of the first murder that uh, I was a part of in the homicide unit was a a young 19 year old girl, beautiful uh, girl put in the back of a trunk and the car was burned. Uh, And they, they dumped the car in a housing project downtown. And that was how my homicide uh, career began and just went, you know, from there, then it was nothing but devastation. And the thing is, everybody talks about the homicide part. So you see the murders, you see the shootings, uh, you see those violent crimes, but you also just do regular death investigations. So anybody under the age of 65 that doesn't have any chronic medical problems or stuff like that, you have to investigate, you know, why, why did they die? And, and, you know, it's part of human nature. It's part of the world. People just die. That happens. But everybody, Anytime there's a death, I don't care what the situation is. Somebody wants a somebody wants an explanation. Why did this happen? Suicides, uh, we would investigate those. But the the one that absolutely, it, rather than go through every homicide case I ever went through, I, I will tell you the one that crushed me. And it was the first time that I realized that I had some issues that I had not dealt with. Um, I built up all those walls that you referred to. Also, I also fell in love with. Uh, and here's a little plug for Jameson's Irish whiskey. I fell in love with it and it fell in love with me. Uh, we spent yeah. a lot of time together during yeah. those days. I'm allergic and, uh, to it if you, uh, if you know what I mean. I, uh, I am now. I am now. But, I, you know, I didn't have a drinking problem then. Trust me, I had no problems drinking whatsoever. Uh, but now I, I uh, shy away from it. I see the green tint of the bottle and I run the other way. I, right. Nothing but respect for Mr. Jameson, but I'm not... He won the fight. I quit. He's uh, he wins. He's, he's a better a man boxer. than me. <laughs> yeah, no, he's a tough guy. No doubt. He always gave me great advice. Like, hey, go punch that guy in the face. Piss in the closet. It'll be fine. Yeah. So, yeah. <laughs> right. 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 This is Jason Blair, and this is the Silver Linings Handbook Podcast. We'll see you next week for our second episode with Kevin. <laughs>